Well, hello. Welcome to the Imaginary Advice Podcast. My name is Ross Sutherland. How are you? How are you? Um, uh, this month on the podcast, we have uh, a brand new short story written by the author Tim Clare. This is brand new work um, appearing for the first time here on the podcast. And uh, I'm really excited to share it with you. Imaginary. Tim Clare, he also has a brand new novel out right now. It's called The Ice House. You can get it in bookshops in the UK, also in Australia, in South Africa, and everywhere else you can you can pick it up online. It's a story about an old lady whose best friend is a giant beetle. If you like Neil Gaiman or China, Mieville, I, th- I think you're really going to like The Ice House. Also, um, Tim has his own podcast. It's called Death of a Thousand Cuts. It's a, it's a creative writing podcast. So if you're a writer or you want to know more about the writing process, Death of a Thousand Cuts is an essential listen, I think. It's, um, it's an incredible resource. Um, if you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you might recognise Tim's voice. He's been on the podcast before. We had a conversation about Lovecraft back in episode 38. That one's called Scooby-Doo and the Black Sea of Infinity, if you want to check that out. If you're a patron subscriber, um, there's a whole hour of uh, me and Tim talking on my patron page, uh, discussing storytelling, um, when people tell stories that accidentally become real, I think that's the, the the general gist of it. We talk about end of the world cults and the Stanford prison experiment. If all that stuff sounds interesting to you, you can find that at patron.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland. Okay. Um, I think that's quite enough from me. Uh, let's get into... Tim's story now it's a it's a ghost story of sorts um I recommend listening on headphones if you can this is imaginary advice thanks for listening once when he was drunk which was all the time my dad told me there were two types of people in this world Folks who go their whole lives not believing in the big scarecrow and him. What's the big scarecrow, I said. Better you never find out, he said, and went back to his farmer's almanacs. I had so many questions, but they all seemed foolish in the face of his faith. I believe in the big scarecrow, Dad, I said. He looked at me, and his expression was monumentally sad. No, you don't, he said. And he was right. He left when I was six. One morning I came downstairs and Mum had made me a boiled egg and soldiers. Boiled egg and soldiers was only for birthdays. 
Even taking my place at the table felt like an act of mild sacrilege. She watched me eat, waiting till I'd finished and turned the egg upside down in its cup, as if it were whole again. Then she said, Douglas? Yes, Mum? It's your father. He's... He's going away for a while. Like a holiday. She closed her eyes and nodded. Mm. A bit like a holiday. Are we going too? I said. No, she said. Sun shone through the kitchen window and turned the tablecloth the delirious gold of barley. I understood this was something to do with the big scarecrow, but I was savvy enough not to say so. We envy children their capacity for transgression, but even then my world was populated by a thousand glowing taboos, graven into objects, topics and people like cursed runes. When will he be back? I said. I don't know, she said. But we both knew the answer. When he finds what he's looking for. During my first semester of college, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. Heavy breathing and the sound of rain on sheet metal. Don't hang up, said a voice I half recognised. It was husky, disfigured by distance, but it rhymed with something deep in my past, like a radio alarm clock going off in an attic. Who is this, I said, fumbling for my spectacles. I was half in, half out of sleep, feeling like a replica of myself. Look out your window. What? No. Who is Jesus this? Jesus Christ, Dougie, look out your fucking window. Dad? Nothing. Just heavy, dragging breaths and the sound of rain. My heart was pounding, so I got up and checked the lock on my door. Then I staggered over to the curtains. I'd chosen a rural college and the campus was bordered by farmland. The trees were laden with birds who sat in silence like famished indigents, watching us learn. Sometimes, if the wind was blowing the right direction, you could hear pigs screaming. I peered out of my window. Beyond a chain-link fence, acres of wheat fields, silver in the moonlight. What do you see? Wheat rippled and flowed all the way to the horizon. There was an old oak that, before the founding of the campus, had been split by lightning, and for an instant it suggested a dark figure kneeling. Nothing, I said. It's just a field. I heard a sound like chaff swept across a threshing room floor. Dad, I said. But I already knew he was gone.
One night in my mid-twenties, I googled his name. I don't know what made me do it. He hadn't been on my mind or anything. My security job had weird hours and I spent a lot of time strung out on light, sleep and gnarly dreams. A guy had been held at gunpoint on the unit across the street from ours the fortnight before, his wrists tied with tape and men shouting at him about a lockbox that didn't exist. So I don't know, maybe it was that. Got lots of hits, his name's not so uncommon, but none of them looked right. An orthodontist out in Pittsburgh, some guy who imported mowers. There was one, a webpage for a guy in Australia who had founded a temple, where I ended up scrolling through dozens of photos, wondering, could that be him? A man in sunglasses and a white polo neck at a tree planting ceremony, clutching a sapling by its supple throat. The same guy standing in front of the temple's white render walls, beside a painted shingle that read, the Western Australian Temple of the Coming Harvest. They were thrilling, those ten minutes when I let myself imagine this might be my father, when he became tangible, like mist condensing into water. But I knew it wasn't him. The man in the pictures was smiling. In the end, it was him who found me. Got a message through Facebook from a name I didn't recognise. Hey, Dougie, it's your dad. Coming through town in a couple of weeks. Let's touch base. Then a number. I didn't call it. Knew instantly I wouldn't. The shameful truth is... I preferred him as a mystery. Unexamined. Distant. He could be anything I wanted him to be. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the time I didn't think of Dad at all. Mum remarried, a gentle, willowy man called Melker, with a presence like wind chimes. Whenever I visited, he was busying himself with some subtle domestic task, like sorting out old winter clothes to give to charity and zipping the rest into vacuum-sealed bags to go in the attic till spring. He did not impose his sense of order on my mother, nor did unfinished jobs appear to bother him. Rather, he always had a little something to be getting on with, a diffuse and easy grace gifted by his sense of purpose. Mum, for her part, blossomed under his laid-back stewardship. The house felt light and airy, she took up screen printing and taxidermy, performing both pursuits in a well-ventilated cabin she and Melker built together at the end of the garden. Still, I understood there were some things not just unspoken, but unspeakable. One night, the day after Boxing Day I think it was, I slept in my old bedroom and dreamt of a village near a cave its entrance blocked with a boulder and covered with paper seals and prayer scrolls. The villagers were tormented by terrible nightmares of what lay within the cave, but when they woke each morning they could not recall what they had seen. One morning, while the dew lay on the ground, a constable walked to the entrance and took out a knife. It began to cut through the seals one by one. Some were older than the oldest villager, shriveled and yellowed with age. 
The constable wondered what could have been sealed away for so many years, so long that no one remained who remembered why. At last, his knife broke the last seal. He rolled back the boulder. I woke with the weight of my lungs, as if a figure sat squatting on my chest. The vividness of the dream was such that I felt a kind of grief at its passing. And so I lay there in the darkness, struggling to draw breath, remembering who I was. When I came fully to my senses, I went downstairs to fix myself a sandwich from leftovers. The clock on the cooker said it was just gone 2am. I saw the back door was open and rain had pulled around Melka's walking boots. I found Mum out on the porch of her cabin, holding a dead bird. She looked up as I approached, my shoes squeaking on the wet lawn. What are you doing up? she said. Couldn't sleep, I said. You? She shook her head. The bird was small with black feathers that looked blue in the moonlight. Flew into the window, she said, stroking his head with a fingertip. I glanced back towards the house and thought of Melka sleeping soundly under his weighted blanket, purple organza bag of lavender beneath his pillow. When I flew home, I knew I would find a fresh pair of compression socks in my carry-on luggage, some of his pecan bristle wrapped in wax paper, and a handwritten note saying how much he had enjoyed my company. The bird was another kind of message. Through the cabin window I could see Mum's craft things all laid out. Prints of peacocks, ears of corn, a couple of field mice held drying on a bench, their poses fixed with fine gauge wire and pins. I glimpsed a tall silhouette and started. When I looked again, it was just Dad's old jacket she wore for painting, hanging from a corner of the dryer. Rain had lifted the smells from the grass and empty flower beds, and there was no wind. Mum put the bird on the table, and I understood that wherever it had come from, it had left a gap that would soon seal. Mum. I said. Yes, Douglas. Do you believe in anything? She reached out and tapped the table with an index finger. Once, twice, three times. The bird shivered. Somewhat, she said. When Leanne had pneumonia, I had to drive across country to be with her and the kids. I remember staring into rain as it cut through the headlights. It looked like snow and cast its own shadow against the road. I had the strangest feeling that if I took my hands off the wheel, the car would drive itself. I peed into the hot water bottle I kept in the glove box. My eyes were bleary and the footwells clattered with empty cans of energy drink called Spark Plug along with chocolate raisins was the only thing I'd consumed for the past eight hours.
I listened to cassettes of birdsong I'd recorded that summer we spent house-sitting for Gordon's orchestra friends down by the beach. I don't remember falling asleep, but I remember the ugly slur of branches as the car left the road, the timpani boom as it hit the drainage ditch and flipped. There was the crunch of glass, then the noise of the storm and the noise of the engine were inside the car. The airbag smothered me. I felt lateral torque, and for a moment I was being hugged and flung away at the same time. Then it was over, save for rain on the underside of the car and the angry rev of wheels turning uselessly against the sky. I undid my belt and crawled out through the passenger window, sweeping aside cans of spark plug. The rain was hot and punchy and I gasped when it struck the back of my neck. I was in a field. The car had slid sideways and the flattened, gleaming stalks looked like reeds in a wide river that flowed back to the road. My mouth tasted of old lightning. The sky lit up and seconds later came the crump of thunder. I patted my pockets and realised my phone was missing. I was shaking. Rain was dripping from my hair and I had a nasty cut down my arm. I wouldn't be home for at least a day and our car was wrecked. We seemed to swing from one crisis to the next in those days. There wasn't a week went by when I didn't feel like the world was coming apart. Wind rattled the cornstalks. I turned to face it. The car's headlights blinded me. I squinted against them, peering into the driving rain. Two burning eyes against a sea of black. A deeper black than the black of the sky. Swaying. Alive. I raised my arms. The wind caught my wet sleeves and made them billow. When I glanced back towards the road, I threw a beautiful, cruciform silhouette. I felt something hard beneath my heel. When I knelt, I found my phone half buried in the soft mud. The screen was cracked, but working. I found the number and hit dial. He did not sound completely awake. Hello. He said again. The sound of my breathing mixed with the sound of the rain. It's me, I said, a sentinel amongst shifting corn. Look out your window. Thanks again to Tim Clare for that story. One more time, uh, Tim Clare's new book, The Ice House, is out now. I heartily recommend it on the reputation of my family. I swear to you, you will not be disappointed. Um, I'll be back soon with more imaginary advice. 
Así es. 